We're going to review the various types of invasive monitoring for our pediatric patients. We'll talk about principles, errors, and complications, as well as evaluation, setup, and troubleshooting. For this lecture, we'll talk about ECG tracings, arterial lines, central venous lines, left atrial pressure lines, and pulmonary artery catheters with cardiac output measurement. So when we look at the ECG, as we use it in practice, very straightforward, it shows us the heart rate, the rhythm, it can tell us if there's any ischemic changes or if there's any conduction defects. It can be used for trends, variability, which may indicate the need for volume replacement, changes in inotropes, diagnostics, as well as, you know, when we look at diagnostics, things such as tall peak T waves, which could indicate hyperkalemia or ST segment changes, which could indicate ischemic changes. Now in our cardiac population, when we do our ECG tracings, we can also look to see if a P wave is present. And this is done by the use of an atriogram. And here in this picture off to the right, you'll notice that there is an, a pacing wire underneath the EKG lead. The pacing wire is actually placed directly on the epicardium, which would give us the largest amplitude for our tracing. So if we have someone that we're concerned might have some type of junctional rhythm, we can use this method to see if there's truly a P wave present. Another method is where we can actually take, we can perform a 12 lead EKG where we connect it directly to the atrial wires, again, amplifying the signal. We often use this for the post-operative cardiac patient, um, and it, it is very effective, especially if we're trying to evaluate if the patient is having a junctional ectopic tachycardia. Some of the errors that we have with using ECG tracing are 60 cycling, and that's where there's some interference with the electrical conduction. The child's movement obviously can be a, a major issue. And of course, if we don't properly place our leads, we can get some errors in the readings that we see on the monitor. Now let's move on to arterial uh, waveforms. The history behind arterial waveforms is very interesting. In fact, Stephen uh, Hales recorded the first blood pressure in a horse back in 1733. And what he did was he took a very long glass pipette and placed it into the um, horse's carotid artery. And, you could, and he measured the variability in the systolic and diastolic pressures. Arterial lines, we have various places that we can place the arterial lines, such as the radius or in the dorsalis pedis. Your pedal pressures have a highest systolic blood pressure because they need to bring the blood back to the core. Of your arterial pressure should be equal to the heart rate, and our normal value is age-dependent. When we look at the components of the arterial waveform, we have a rapid upstroke and then a downstroke. And as we're coming down on the downstroke, there is the dichrotic notch. Errors that we commonly see is an improper placement of the transducer levels. If, the, if, the, um, if we've not zeroed appropriately with the transducer at the level of the phlebostatic axis, we can have errors as well. If the position is too low, that means it's below the phlebostatic axis, then the pressures are falsely elevated. If it is too high, then the pressures are falsely low. Your phlebostatic axis is an imaginary line. If a patient is lying supine, that, cuts, that transects the heart into two separate halves. Again, other types of errors that we can see are poor waveforms. So if there's any bubbles within the transducer or the system, you can get erroneous waveforms. 
there are two types of um, poor waveforms with the arterial line. There's under dampening, where you have a very tall upstroke, and then there's over dampening, where you get more of like a smooth flattening of the waveform itself. Again, these are often caused by poor flow through the artery, or there's um, some type of obstruction somewhere along the tubing or even within the patient. So what does the arterial line tell us? Well, of course, it gives us a continuous blood pressure. So for anyone that is hemodynamically unstable or if we're giving them treatments with vasoactive medications, we'll want to get a continuous blood pressure on these patients. And of course, we also get easy blood sampling. So if we're drawing lots of labs, particularly blood, blood gases, having an arterial line is to your advantage. It correlates with dysrhythmias. So in fact, if you start seeing some type of ventricular changes, you'll see changes in the arterial waveform as well. And this means your cardiac output has also changed. It tells us our systemic vascular resistance. And in some cardiac defects, it can also be very helpful as well. One thing to note, when you um, do have an arterial waveform and you are concerned um, about uh, tamponade physiology, you want to assess for pulses paradoxes. Pulses paradoxes is a condition when a patient takes a deep breath in, they have a drop in the amplitude of their arterial waveform of 10 millimeters of mercury or more. And then when they exhale, they get the return of the amplitude um, back to baseline. And this is often seen in patients that have cardiac tamponade. We also see this in patients that have status asthmaticus, because again, we've increased intrathoracic pressure, so whenever they take a big breath in, there's a squeeze on the heart, there's a drop in that, that amplitude of the blood pressure, and then when they exhale, they relieve some of that intrathoracic pressure and it returns to baseline. Here on this waveform in front of you, you see a patient that has um, four beat run of ventricular tachycardia. And if you compare it to the arterial waveform below, you can see how the arterial waveform significantly flattens out, or you have poor output during those four beat runs. You also see it again here, where we have a seven beat run of VTAC, and again, you have a dampening of the waveform with irregularities comparative to the rhythm that you're seeing on the ECG tracing. Moving on to central venous pressure, I like this picture because it really shows how far we've come with technology. When I was a brand new nurse working in the intensive care unit, we had to use a level to measure the transducer at the phlebostatic axis. So you could see here on the patient, they've actually drawn that imaginary line and they've actually set up the transducer to be flat and equal with it so that they can get a good tracing for this patient. Our central venous pressures give us an indirect measurement of cardiac preload. Essentially, it tells us how much volume is filling the right ventricle. Uh, normal values can be anywhere from three to seven millimeters of mercury, and that may range as much as five to 12 millimeters of mercury, depending on what literature you're reading. The line is also used for blood sampling. We can administer vasoactive medications and concentrated electrolytes, as well as sampling for mixed venous saturations. The reference point is the right atrium, and we wanted, uh, we can also get a reflective measurement of the ventri right ventricular end diastolic pressure. It can also reflect left ventricular end diastolic pressure if cardiac and pulmonary conditions are normal. What you need um, to set a central venous line up, 
is a central line kit, a sterile cart, a CVP monitoring waveform, and a cardiac monitor. When we look at the CVP waveform, it's important for us to compare it to the ECG tracing. So one of the things that you will notice on the A waveform, which is right here, you will see atrial contraction or atrial um, ejection. And then on the V wave, you'll see the relaxation of the waveform, and this is where the atrium fills with volume, getting ready for the next atrial contraction. In patients that have a junctional ectopic tachycardia, you can see Canon A waves. And what here in this, in this strip that you have in front of you, you have your central venous line and uh, your, your CVP is given the tracing here at the bottom with your uh, ECG tracing up top. You can see these large deflective Canon A waves as the patient has these wide complex rhythms that have no P waves or junctional type of beats. And then when the P waves return, you get a more normal looking CVP tracing until they again become more wide complex with loss of P waves, you get more of these Canon A waves. This would be diagnostic for a patient that's post-cardiac surgery and you're concerned about junctional ectopic tachycardia. Here we're having someone that's having a paroxysmal event where they're going in and out of jet. The interpretation of the Canon A waves really indicates the atrium contracting against a closed tricuspid valve. And then it's commonly seen with patients that have an AV, or an atrial ventricular disassociation. We see it probably the most post-cardiac patient that has junctional ectopic tachycardia. You can also see it sometimes with complete heart block and VTAC. Some common errors that we see with the CVP tracing include improper leveling, just like we do with the arterial waveform, air bubbles in the line, and improper line placement. An elevated CVP or right atrial pressure can indicate cardiac tamponade, tachyarrhythmias, intravascular volume overload, poor right ventricular compliance, and tricuspid valve disease. Oftentimes when we have someone that's status post a liver transplant, we'll monitor the CVP closely to make sure that they're not getting too much volume and making sure that volume is not backing up into the liver. In patients that are post-cardiac surgery, we wanna measure and keep an eye on the CVP because if we get a sharp increase in the CVP, it could indicate cardiac tamponade or we may see alterations with the CVP with patients that have tachyarrhythmias. A decreased CVP can tell you that there's a decreased intravascular volume or patient's volume depleted or there's inadequate preload. Now that we've discussed the various different types of waveforms, let's take a look at this graphic. We have a patient here that's being paced. You can see that there's tick marks at the top and there's pacer spikes just before every ventricular complex. When we look at the seventh, second waveform, you can see that there's actually atrial ventricular pacing because there's an atrial pace and a ventricular pace. Also, take a look at the waveform here. Here we have an increase in amplitude and a drop in amplitude. Increase, drop. Increase, drop. This could be indicative of someone who's having uh, pulses paradoxus. So definitely something to keep an eye on. This is your arterial waveform here in red. In blue, your CVP waveform here does not look normal. In fact, I would even, it would even suggest to me that the central venous line 
might be in the right, right ventricle itself with such a large, crazy waveform. Again, when we look at our plath, we can also see some of that variability as it goes up and then as it comes down and goes up again and comes down, which would also be indicative of pulses paradoxus. So for this patient, there might be further investigation that needs to occur. This patient could be volume depleted, which you could see pulses paradoxus. They could also have some degree of tamponade, which would require um, bedside ultrasound to evaluate and to further investigate a problem. Now, let's move on to left atrial lines. We don't often see these lines placed. I've personally only ever seen them post-cardiac surgery, and again, most surgeons only place them for certain conditions. These lines are placed directly in through the pulmonary veins into the left atrium, and they tell us, um, they give us the mean for the left atrial pressure or the left end diastolic, the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. The normal value for these are typically between 4 to 12 millimeters of mercury. And again, they're placed surgically, oftentimes for patients that have some type of pulmonary hypertension or right ventricular failure <clears throat> or concerns for a repair that could lead to these conditions. Again, your waveform looks very similar to the CVP with your A waves, your C waves, and your V waves. The disadvantage of the left atrial pressure line is that if you get an air embolism in this line, it could go directly to the patient's coronary artery, or worse, it can go straight to the patient's brain, causing a stroke. So you have to be very cautious and very careful with these lines. Oftentimes, surgeons will not allow us to run medications through there or draw blood samples from there just to remove or eliminate the likelihood of, a blood, of, of an air bubble getting into the circuit. You can also get thromboembolisms, they can bleed, especially during removal, especially if there's a, a large hole within the pulmonary vein. And then, of course, your line can become displaced or malfunctioned. And again, if this, if this happens and you're, you're infusing or bolusing medications through here, you could develop uh, an iatrogenic cardiac tamponade. An elevated LAP can tell us that there might be uh, left ventricular dysfunction. Again, it can indicate some type of tamponade, volume overload, mitral valve regurgitation, or aortic stenosis. A decreased LAP, again, could also mean volume depletion or pull a poor pulmonary blood flow. Errors that are commonly seen are just like our others, where there could be improper leveling and calibration, air bubbles in the line, or improper line placement. Next, we'll talk about the pulmonary artery catheter. Oftentimes, these, again, are surgically placed and specifically in patients that are typically too small for a Swan-Gans catheter. I can tell you I've seen less and less of these over the years, and many of you probably have not seen one at all. It gives us a direct value measurement of the pulmonary artery itself. It is excellent for, for sending samples for mixed venous saturations. And again, it's contraindicated in any child with RV to PA conduits, just because we don't want to make, we want to make sure that there's no obstruction of that conduit. Um, with increased pulmonary artery pressures, of course, it can indicate that you have a pulmonary artery hypertension. You could have mitral valve disease, left ventricular failure, with various other um, causes here on the screen. A decreased pulmonary artery pressure, again, can tell you that there's a low volume status, or it could be because the patient is pulmonary vasodilated. 
Now the Swan Gans catheter, also I've seen less and less over the years just because the market does not make catheters small enough for our pediatric population. And the risk and the difficulty of placing these lines, typically I've only seen these lines in patients coming out of the cath lab where it's much easier to visualize the line being placed into the patient, directly into the pulmonary artery. And oftentimes, um, depending on where you are, they will leave these lines in the ICU for a period of time because it does increase the patient's status for a heart transplant. We used to use them a lot in older patients that are in septic shock, unresponsive to fluid resuscitation, because it allows us to get accurate measurements of the patient's hemodynamic status and to bolus them appropriately. We've also seen it in refractory shock following burn injuries, um, sometimes in congenital heart disease, multi-organ failure, respiratory failure. Here you have the FIC method to measure cardiac output. Again, with the accurate measurements from the Swans-Gantz catheter, it allows you to determine cardiac output. Nowadays, we have much more sophisticated uh, equipment um, that allow us to get this, these measurements. Um, and oftentimes in pediatrics, we really follow the patient's volume status um, and cardiac echoes to determine their cardiac output um, and go from there. Uh, the cardiac output method usually requires a thermal dilution where there's actually a measurement of bolus fluid that goes in at one temperature, and then as it meets the end of the catheter, it's measuring that distance between the two, giving you a cardiac output result. The Swans-Gantz is a great catheter when you have it because you have multitude of ports, you have a multitude of access, where you can measure the central venous pressure, the pulmonary artery pressure, you can run capillary wedge pressures, you can get cardiac output, SVO2 monitoring, DO2 uh, monitoring, oxygen consumption, as well as PVR and SVR. Here's an infographic of the different waveforms that we typically see with patients that have a wedge pressure as it's being placed into the patient. Again, we typically don't see this much, very much anymore, and often patients are taken to the cath lab where they can visualize this under fluoroscopy. Again, here's another graphic showing you the various different sections and waveforms that you'll see with um, uh, um, Swans-Gantz catheter. This little graphic here is just an info on the various different types of measurements you can get with normal ranges. Again, various ports, you get a proximal port, distal port, a side port, so you get three, um, it's like a triple lumen line. The thermistor allows you to measure um, your cardiac output itself. You can get an oximetric connector and balloon inflation port for your wedge pressures. Your wedge pressure gives you a reflection of what the left side of the heart is doing. So you get a reflection of the left atrial pressure in the absence of mitral stenosis. The balloon is inflated in the pulmonary artery for no more than 15 seconds, which allows us to wedge off the volume and to measure behind the balloon occlusion to see what that pressure looks like. The tracing will change from a pulmonary artery waveform to a flattened wedge tracing. And this concludes our lecture.